Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 137, The Congress of Berlin. Now, first, as always, I want to thank our newest Patreon supporters. We've got Estelle, uh, a fine gentleman by the name of Suburban Philosopher, Albert Cohen, and Georgi Stoilov. So, big thanks to all of you. And, as always, you know, consider supporting. If you can, even a buck a show helps out a little bit. Now, I'm going to start off this episode a little bit differently with an extended, a very extended quote from a book about the Treaty of San Stefano. Quote, In a house by the seaside at San Stefano, shaking by the increasing gale that tore across the Sea of Marmara, were busy all night long, the secretaries of both diplomatic bodies copying and arranging for the signatories of the Treaty of Peace, the result of the now-concluded negotiations. All night long, Prince Tseretelev, dictated by the treaty to his colleague, Chibachov, wearied by continuous labor. These two secretaries, appreciating the value of their work, kept at their task, only stopping for refreshments and to listen to the scratch of the reeds of the Turkish secretaries in the adjoining room, busy with their own copy, until the full dawn found them still at the table. Then, the last word being on paper, they slept amid the confusion of documents, maps, and volumes, as a soldier sleeps in his harness. Scarcely was it daylight when, notwithstanding the storm, There was an unusual movement in the village. There was a general idea that peace was to be signed that day. The steamers from Constantinople came rolling along through the rough seas overladen with excursionists attracted by the review which had been announced to take place in celebration of the anniversary of the Tsar's ascension to the throne. Greeks, Bulgarians, Turks, and Russians crowded to the little village, besieging the restaurants, swarming about the doors of houses, whence were supposed to issue some of the great personages who were to become famous in history, all impatiently awaiting the hour of two, the appointed time of the review. The horses of the Grand Duke and his staff were gathered about the entrance to his quarters, and the keen-eyed spectators, ready to interpret the slightest movement of the commander-in-chief, formed unbroken ranks around the group of horses in the street. One o'clock passed, two o'clock passed, and still no movement. People began to grow serious, began to feel that something was in the air, were sure that this was the decisive moment, that peace and war were trembling in the scale, and one said to the other solemnly, this is an event in history, and each believed himself an actor in the scene, such was its impressiveness. At length, word was given out that the review was postponed for an hour. Later, rain fell, but people remained at their posts. At last, their patience was rewarded. About four o'clock, the Grand Duke mounted and rode to the diplomatic chancellery, where he asked at the door, Is it ready? And then galloped towards the hill where the army was drawn up. Here, there was a halt again for a few moments. And finally, a carriage came whirling along. General Ignatiev was in it. And when he approached, he rose and said, I have the honor to congratulate your highness on the signature of peace. There was a long, loud shout. 
Then the Grand Duke, followed by a hundred officers, dashed forward to where the troops were formed on rising ground close by the seacoast, just behind San Stefano Lighthouse, and began riding along the lines. As he passed, the soldiers did not know that peace had been signed as it was still unannounced, but soon news spread and the cheering grew louder and more enthusiastic. There were Shuvalov's and Rauch's divisions, were the sharpshooters of the guard and the cavalry and artillery in line, and the Grand Duke passed between the ranks in review. Very different indeed was the appearance of these soldiers, not that of the same men months before. During their interval of rest, they had patched and cleaned their clothes, repaired and polished their boots, washed and brushed up generally, and they looked as neat and trim as could possibly be expected. After riding between the lines of the Grand Duke, halted on a little eminence whence all the troops could be seen, and formally made the announcement of the peace. I have the honor to inform the army that, with the help of God, we have concluded a treaty of peace. Then another shout burst forth from 20,000 throats, rising, swelling, and dying away. There was a general feeling of relief and satisfaction. There stood the famous regiment of Peter the Great, the Preobajanski, often the first to attack in many of the late battles of the war. There were the troops who had faced the enemy on the bleak summits of the Balkans at Arabkonak for a long, cold, and terrible month. There were the men who had toiled over the slippery mountain paths, scantily fed, thinly dressed, dragging the heavy guns across into the valley, finding after their struggles with cold, hunger, and fatigue a desperate enemy ready to resist them at every hilltop. These were the same brave fellows who had made the long march from Sofia to Filipopolis, and who had run the race for enormous stakes with Suleiman's army, and finally threw their great force against the wall of the Rodope Mountains, and demolished it. These were the men whose courage, devotion, and unparalleled endurance will go down in history. And there, gathered scarcely more than a rifle shot away, was the enemy they had found worthy of their steel. For on the crest of the neighboring hills stood the Turks in groups, interested spectators of the scene. These very fellows who had kept the snowy ridge of the Shandarnik, defending gallantly the great gate of Rumeria, and who at last, after a memorable retreat, had fought like heroes on the hills of Stanimaka. These two armies stood looking at each other at this moment of final peace. Like true soldiers, they had learned to respect and esteem each other and welcome peace as an honorable finish to the fight which they craved not to prolong. It was the beginning of a new friendship formed on the basis of actual experiences and qualities that had hitherto been unrecognized. End quote. Now this is taken from a book on the Russo-Turkish War published a year after it concluded by R. Grant Barnwell in Philadelphia in the United States. I thought it was a pretty interesting examination of what this moment of the signing of Treaty of, uh, the Treaty of San Stefano was and how it felt on the ground to maybe be there and, and just sort of what that moment was like. So I wanted to start with that. And also there's not as, you know, th this episode ends at the end of the uh, signing of the Treaty of Berlin. So getting into it. Last time we left off with the conclusion of the Treaty of San Stefano, the great power hostility towards that treaty and the secret agreements leading up to the Congress of Berlin. In the months between these two agreements, the administering of the new semi-independent Bulgarian state had already begun. A new Bulgarian army was established with its training school in Plovdiv, although the Congress of Berlin was probably going to be throwing a wrench into that plan. 
The new provisional Russian administration also introduced a ticket system to allow Bulgarians to settle in abandoned Muslim houses and to work their land. This is a reminder that prior to independence, Bulgaria's population was indeed far more mixed than it would become in the following decades, and that the new administration was ready and eager to take advantage of the refugees resulting from the war. Indeed, over the coming months, even as the Congress of Berlin got underway, Russian soldiers and Bulgarian irregulars would engage in attacks on Muslim civilians in Bulgaria, resulting in over 150,000 refugees pouring into Constantinople alone. Unfortunately, these attacks would be the first of many harsh actions taken against the Muslim populations of Bulgarian lands in the coming years. And I think it's a rather kind of tragic thing to think about because a lot of this anger was against Ottomans and their administration, but also against all the Circassian and all the Tatar refugees that for the last several decades have poured into Bulgaria and taken out their anger over their treatment by the Russians against Bulgarians and created this sort of tit-for-tat fighting that ultimately just results in yet more human suffering, more refugees, uh, and just more tragedies. But that is something, you know, despite this triumphant moment for Bulgaria finally gaining some level of independence from the Ottoman Empire, it is accompanied by some terrible actions by Bulgarians uh, resentful of, you know, whether it was actions taken by Muslim civilians during the April uprising or just uh, some neighbor they don't like or or just general anger. I mean, uh, each one of these 150,000 had their own individual human stories and the, the people who took actions against them, their own reasons for doing so. Now, getting beyond that soon, Knyaz Alexander Dondukov Korsakov, uh, the famous street is named after, will arrive in Plovdiv and take over the administration of Bulgaria on behalf of the Russian government. But for now, Bulgaria would still be ruled by foreigners, but still for the first time in centuries, there's a change in the air and Bulgaria is moving towards independence. Now that change also came to the Bulgarian Exarchate as it concluded its final synod in the city of Constantinople before at last moving its activities to Bulgaria proper. Lastly, in the lead up to the Congress of Berlin, 21 Bulgarian municipalities in Macedonia sent a plea to the Russian administration that they should be included in a new Bulgarian kingdom. And all this brings us to June 1878 and the beginning of the Congress of Berlin. Now, while San Stefano's provisions carried with them the threat of a European war, because so many of the great powers were staunchly against what was set out in San Stefano, by the time the Berlin Congress actually began, all those secret meetings we talked about before had really gotten rid of that risk. So, you know, meeting in Berlin, when this is happening, there's still the question of what's going to result, what you know, what new peace treaty will be set aside. But it's important to understand that the fear that these events could trigger a broader European war has already dissipated. Now, Crankshaw, in his biography of uh, Otto von Bismarck, pointed out that Ignatieff's contempt for the West was only matched by his ignorance of it, and that this was born out in San Stefano. And I think that is an important thing, that, you know, we've talked a lot about Count Ignatieff and his kind of pan-Slavic uh, beliefs and how how hard he's fought for kind of Russian interests in the region. But when you look at what he achieved at San Stefano, it's it's remarkable in the framework of, you know, uh, a devoted pan-Slav trying to achieve some of the greatest dreams of a kind of pan-Slav activist. But at the same time, you know, we've looked at San Stefano in the broader European kind of geopolitical context 
And it should be very clear to anyone who really understood the West that they were never going to accept this. And in this sense, you know, he you could see Ignatieff is sort of massively overplaying his hand. And that's why I picked up that quote that I think Crankshaw really got at something there, that Ignatiev didn't understand the West and had contempt for it. And so he wasn't willing to kind of adjust and modify the goals he had in mind when he set out the Treaty of San Stefano in order to make those goals kind of more realistic in the long run. No, he was not going to compromise to, obviously, as we'll see, great effect. Now, the diplomats who gathered in Berlin had kind of the opposite problem of uh, Mr. Ignatieff. They had little interest or even contempt for the peoples of the Balkans and great concern for the needs and desires of their fellow great powers. So, it should come as no surprise that none of the Balkan states were properly included in the Congress of Berlin. Even the Ottomans themselves were basically ignored and humiliated, but they were at least present at the meetings. By contrast, the representatives of the Serbs, Bulgarians, and Romanians who had fought and died in this war were lucky if they were even invited to a social engagement connected to the Congress. On one occasion, the French foreign minister managed to get the Greek delegation 30 minutes to speak in front of the Congress and make a case for Greece getting larger territory, but eyewitnesses point out that most of the audience slept through the presentation. Ultimately, this is a Congress largely between Germany, Russia, Austria-Hungary, and Great Britain. Again, France, the Ottomans, they were there, but those four powers, they were the ones that mattered here. And this was their Congress. And the Congress was basically comprised of, based on Bismarck's belief that a country that could not field a large army had no opinions worth hearing. Thus, France and the Ottomans, not very important. Remember, France had been recently defeated by what was now the German Empire, uh, then Prussia, and the Ottomans had just been defeated by Russia. And so these sort of defeated lesser powers in Bismarck's mind you know, who cares? This was his realpolitik, right? Uh, politics is who has an army to exercise that those politics. As Misha Glenny put it, quote, the only immutable principle of imperialist cartography was the advancement of great power interests. It never entered Bismarck's head that the other confessional or national groups might have legitimate rights or aspirations, end quote. Again, it's another quote that I think really gets at that mentality here. You know, it's not that Bismarck was aware that there were these national groups and they had their interests, blah, blah, blah. It appears to have never even occurred to them that these people were worth listening to, the, the people of the Balkans, the people whose borders his Congress was drawing. And so, in this context, the Congress of Berlin got underway. Now, the first half of the Congress was largely focused on the question of Bulgaria. There were endless hours of haggling between Disraeli and the Russian representative Gorchakov about the precise borders and where Ottoman troops would be stationed. Now, initially, the Ottomans wanted the right to garrison the mountain passes between Bulgaria and eastern Rumelia, but Russian and Bulgarian protests forced them to abandon the idea. Then, partway through the conference, came the surprise announcement that the Ottomans were handing over administration of Cyprus to Britain in exchange for Britain's promise to support the Ottomans during the Congress. Now, again, technically the British were only going to administer Cyprus, but the result of this was very clear. This meant that the Ottomans were literally giving away the island for British support. And just to be clear, this agreement was actually made a little while ago, but it only came to light about now. So, 
you had all these meetings going, right? The, the, the Greeks made their case to a room full of sleeping people. They discussed Bulgaria. All this lasted about a month. And when it was completed, San Stefano was, for the Bulgarians, little more than a memory or really just a cruel joke. The large Bulgarian state proposed by that treaty was cut into three pieces. The Principality of Bulgaria would be ruled by a Christian prince, but importantly not one from one of the major ruling dynasties of Europe. But this new Principality of Bulgaria would still nominally be part of the Ottoman Empire. All those debates and discussions within the BRCC and elsewhere about just what a liberated Bulgarian state would look like, how it should be governed, all these things, they, they seem practically silly now in retrospect. You know, all the discussions, all the Bulgarians who cared so deeply about what an independent Bulgaria might be look like, what might look like, and now that that independent Bulgaria was here, it was simply the great powers dictating what an independent Bulgaria would look like. Uh, so... I know, just I had to comment on that. It seems a bit ironic uh, to reflect on all those discussions, right? Uh, Levski wanting a republic and many others wanting a monarchy and everything. But in the end, it wasn't any of their choice. That said, though, Bulgaria would be allowed to draw up its own constitution. But again, we can't pretend this is going to be done with a completely free hand. After all, Russia cared a great deal about what this young Bulgarian state would do. And we'll see that play out in the coming decades. And if for no other reason than because Russia cared a great deal, the other great powers of Europe would also care, at least to some extent. So, this principality would make up the lands between the Danube and the Balkan Mountains, including Sofia. Northern Dobruja would be given to Romania to appease it for Russia taking Bessarabia from it. So, you know, uh, there's this classic kind of, uh, I take it from you and then give it to someone else kind of deal. Also, the lands around Pirot were to be given uh, from Bulgaria, from the San Stefano Bulgaria, to Serbia. So, we've got this new smaller Bulgarian principality, and it is losing the lands around Pirot to Serbia and northern Dobruja to Romania. The second of the three portions that Bulgaria was being cut into was Eastern Rumelia, a state to the south of the Balkan Mountains, or the Staroplinina, with its capital in Plovdiv. Now, the Russians wanted to call the state Southern Bulgaria, but the British torpedoed the idea, uh, I guess hoping that uh, calling it Eastern Rumelia would make unification less likely or something, or maybe it would just look bad, I don't know. Now, Eastern Rumelia would be autonomous within the Ottoman Empire as well, and it would also have a Christian prince. But, so, so you know, it sounds like it would be basically the same as the Principality of Bulgaria, but it would still be politically separate. Now, the remaining third portion that Bulgaria was being cut into was basically the remaining Macedonian and Thracian territories, which had been given to Bulgaria under the Treaty of San Stefano, and these were returned to the Ottoman Empire, ensuring that it would retain a large swath of territory cutting across the Balkan Peninsula. Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro were all recognized as fully independent from the Ottoman Empire. To the east, the Russian territory it had acquired from the Ottomans in the Treaty of San Stefano was largely retained, so the kind of border in, uh, in the Caucasus was adjusted in the same way. Only a single valley changed hands from Russian to Ottoman as a result of Berlin, but basically those gains were fine with everyone. Now, Montenegro received a decent amount of new territory, but importantly, Montenegro also obtained a substantial Albanian minority. Now, Austria-Hungary got its wish and was allowed to administer Bosnia and Herzegovina, although, like Cyprus, it would still technically be Ottoman. 
Greece got nothing, uh, but negotiations did officially begin over adjusting the Greek-Ottoman border, but this is not that surprising. Remember, Greece didn't really participate in the war. They joined kind of at the end, and it was a bit of a mess. Now, the way Bismarck saw it, he had, in the process of this, uh, Congress of Berlin effectively saved Russia from the more demanding ex- or the more extreme demands of Britain and Austria-Hungary. So Bismarck was interested in still maintaining a good relationship with Russia and thought he was protecting Russia. But Russia saw things very differently and felt profoundly betrayed by Germany. As a result, Russia politically moved away from Germany and Austria-Hungary. Remember, the three powers had formerly kind of formed that Three Emperors League. And as Russia moved away from Germany and Austria-Hungary, Austria-Hungary and Germany therefore drew closer to one another. Now, this is, you know, a kind of interesting effect, right? So we're going to see how the fact that San Stefano promised so much for Bulgaria and so much was taken away created this intense resentment. But it's interesting that the same thing kind of happened with Russia, that Russia was set to gain a lot from San Stefano. And it's in its eyes that had really been taken away by the Congress of Berlin. And so it felt betrayed. In fact, Russia felt so aggrieved by Germany and Austria-Hungary over this uh, over this outcome that, again, it was willing to kind of completely reshuffle its geopolitical position within Europe. But the resentments, ooh, they don't end there. Romania was also very angry and resented Russia for taking Bessarabia. Romania apparently didn't care that much that it was getting northern Dobruja. It was much more concerned about losing Bessarabia. Bulgaria obviously resented just about everyone. Uh, you know, for its treatment. I mean, perhaps not as much the Russians as they were doing what they could, but Bulgaria was just very angry about this situation in general. Now, the Serbs now resented the Austro-Hungarians for expanding into Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, even though, you know, Serbia had been so afraid of San Stefano, Bulgaria, and was really upset over the Treaty of San Stefano, and in theory, they should be happy that San Stefano, Bulgaria was no more. But, you know, I guess the long and short of it here is that everyone found something to hate in the Treaty of Berlin. Everyone. This set out a world in which every single power involved felt it had been wronged and it had not gotten quite what they wanted. I mean, maybe the the Austro-Hungarians kind of did. I mean, they didn't even participate in the war, but they wanted to administer Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that's eventually what they got. But besides that, no one really came out of this happy. So, Taking a wider view, it's kind of remarkable that the event which began in the April uprising had, through some absurd butterfly effect, kind of laid the groundwork for the First World War, if you want to look at it that way. Obviously, there are a lot of factors in here, but you know, if you see it from the perspective of the April uprising led to these harsh reprisals against the Bulgarians, and those harsh reprisals were so covered in the European press, and that that created this political pressure, which enabled Russia to declare war and to sort of get involved and try to take more territory from the Ottomans and expand its geopolitical position into the Balkans. And that by doing that, you, I I think really did, the the Congress of Berlin really did kind of set out the world that created the First World War. You know, you had Serbia resentful at Austria-Hungary for taking Bosnia and Herzegovina. And 
laying out, you know, what would eventually lead to the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, right? You had Russia being pushed away from Germany and Austria-Hungary, which would eventually lead it to become allies with France. Uh, You had Austria-Hungary and Germany being pushed closer to one another uh, and kind of to the Ottomans. You know, all these ways, all these factors really kind of established that groundwork for the First World War. So if you look at Europe before the Congress of Berlin, you, you you can't really see how the First World War could happen, right? The, the the kind of situation that led to it doesn't make any sense from that perspective. But if you look at Europe after the Congress of Berlin, you can absolutely see how the First World War could happen. It's all there. Again, there's, you know, three and a half more decades to go and a lot more is going to happen to really set the groundwork. But it's kind of a remarkable way in which all these things are connected. And, uh, well, I guess you could say the way tragedy leads to tragedy. Now, uh, of course, to better understand all this, you know, I've been outlining the results of the treaty and where these territories are. I, I highly recommend you check out the blog post linked in this episode description because there's going to be a lot of maps that will make all this much easier to understand. But the last kind of thing to talk about, the last element in which you know, later history was really set in motion by this uh, Treaty of Berlin was sowing of the seeds of conflict between Serbs and Albanians, something that, as we all know, continues really to this day. Now, during the years of war against the Ottomans, as the Serbs advanced into the territory around Nish, this pushed about 30 to 70,000 Albanian refugees to flee from that region into Kosovo. This both increased the Albanian population of Kosovo and led many Albanians there to engage in revenge attacks against local Serbs. So it doesn't take an expert or a genius to figure out how all this, in many ways, again, laid the groundwork for the arguments and the fighting and the bloodshed between Serbs and Albanians in the Balkans. Now, again, looking more broadly, Ivan Ilchev wrote of the Treaty of Berlin, quote, Borders were redrawn, leaving the Balkans as small, quarreling states that were easy prey to the experienced diplomats of the great powers. The Bulgarians were dumbfounded, the nation's flesh torn apart. Relations between the Balkan states, none of whose ambitions were completely satisfied, were poisoned for years to come. A new knot of contradictions was tied between the great powers. Guided by their desire for tactical advantage, the western states left the peninsula in a more unstable state than before the war. So I like that quote from Crampton, I've kind of put together from a few sections in his book, that, you know, the European powers, you know, wanted their own, you know, everyone was desiring tactical advantage, right? Everyone's trying to, to gain a little here and to gain a little there. And as a result, everybody lost. It's it's like if you're familiar with game theory, right? That you can have a game where everyone's trying to win and as a result, everyone loses. It was kind of like that. By contrast, looking at how the way R.J. Crampton put it, the new Bulgarian state was to enter into life with a ready-made program for territorial expansion and a burning sense of the injustice meted out to it by the great powers, end quote. So there's a more Bulgarian-focused position that, you know, what Bulgaria's main political goals as a semi-independent state were going to be was from day one crystal clear to anyone who paid any attention. It was obvious what Bulgaria was going to do. Somehow, none of the great powers seemed to really think about this. Again, you know, why I gave those quotes before that, you know, the main players in the Congress of Berlin gave no thought whatsoever to the people of the Balkans. 
And, you know, it's again, anyone who's studied imperialism is familiar. It's the same as they, they act in, uh, you know, in the Arab world, in the Middle East, in Africa, everywhere. Just locals don't matter. Who cares what, what their languages are, their uh, histories, traditions, all this kind of stuff. But here we're really seeing the results. You know, Misha Glennie reflected on this legacy by writing, quote, Given the geographical diversity and complex demography of the Balkans, any division of the region into new states that neglected to take into account local antagonisms was bound to fail. But as Mikhail Obrenovich, G.S. Rokovsky, and other Balkan leaders suspected, the great powers would encourage the expansion of nation-states where and when it suited their interests to do so and ignore overlapping national claims. End quote. So this is just sort of echoing what these other writers have said, that the great powers, everyone was kind of thinking of, if you want to put it this way, uh, the kind of Bismarck realpolitik, you know, it's all gaining advantage, it's all exercising the, the politics of power. But the cruel irony is that in doing so, all of them were hurting themselves. They were hurting uh, their own nations. And they, they thought they were, they were sort of benefiting by coming to these agreements and uh, gaining their little advantages here and there. So, in other words, the great powers continued to treat the Balkans as little more than another colonial playground where they could exercise their political spheres of interest without the slightest regard for the people who actually lived there. Misha Glennie, in fact, would go on to write that, quote, from the Congress of Berlin onwards, cooperation in the Balkans was replaced by competition, harmony by discord. The peoples of the Balkans would pay dearly for this transformation, end quote. And it's with that quote that I'm going to be wrapping up the regular episodes of season six of the Bulgarian History Podcast. It has taken nearly a year and a half, roughly, to cover the momentous years from 1807 to the final moment of Bulgaria's partial liberation from the Ottoman Empire. We've seen an incredible change, right, uh, from the, the, you know, when we started this season, the Napoleonic Wars were still going on. They were sort of entering their end phases. And now here we are with Bulgaria finally becoming semi-independent. So from here on out, uh, I'm going to put out the next two episodes, which will be summaries of season six. Uh, I was debating between two and three, but I figured you all probably want to get to season seven a bit faster. So I'm going to have two quite long summary episodes. And then, well, we're going to dive into exactly what this new semi-independent Bulgarian state is going to be. So in the meantime, take care. Uh, glad. Thank you all for listening so much and uh, looking forward to creating more episodes for you all. Now, this episode is written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast again on hold for a while. We'll see what happens with that and other stuff at bghistorypodcast.com and... Yeah, I will see you all in the next one.